Hey, Jordan, how's it going? What's up? What's up, Rob? Oh, not much. Uh, I've just been having a, having a pretty good week. Yeah. Enjoyed watching a lot of sports over the last uh, last couple of weeks. And I got to say, I, I'm thankful that I did not follow your advice to get on board the old Cleveland Browns bandwagon. <laughs> I knew better. I knew better than even though with my limited knowledge of the NFL and that kind of stuff, I'm trying to become more of a fan this year. I knew better than to than to get in, get emotionally invested in a Cleveland sports franchise. The whole thing with Flacco, great Cinderella story, you know, very enjoyable. It was not a it was a, it was a, not a a great ending for that though. So I'm I'm sorry for you, but I'm thankful that I didn't get emotionally invested in that. What a what a terrible. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible game. It was just, I mean, they beat... Uh, on, no, let me rephrase. I don't want to take anything away from C.J. Stroud. Because yeah. when Cleveland beat Houston, Stroud was out. That kid is awesome. And I love that he's having a fantastic year. Uh, Ohio State quarterback, of course, got to gotta support him. Love there him. I think he's great. And I hope he What's has he like a 21, really, 22? I mean, this is, he's a rookie. I mean, he's yeah, somewhere around crazy. there. Yeah, I love that he's having such a fantastic year. Um, separately, I think the Browns played terrible, just absolutely pathetic. But Houston came to play, and Houston's defense was all over Cleveland. Flacco couldn't get the offense going. It was just, it was ugly. It was really, really ugly. I'd be curious to see how Houston fares against Baltimore. That'll be a fun game. Uh, I really hope the Bills beat the Chiefs, though. I yeah. just really want, I really want Buffalo to make it this year. And as you know, I am a lifelong fan, That's lifelong right. super fan of the Buffalo Bills. So I'm yeah. hoping so as well. Anyway, we can do more sports chat um, in, in the next couple of weeks as we see the, a clearer picture of what's going on there. I'm still mourning uh, my guy, Pascal Siakam, uh, <laughs> getting traded from the Raptors uh, to the Pacers. That That one hurts. It stings a lot. He's going to do really well in the Pacers if we got any Pacers fans listening He's going to be absolutely a fantastic fit there. Watched his entire career uh, from an unheralded rookie to, uh, you know, an all-NBA player, all-star, NBA champion. It's been a real pleasure to watch him develop. Shout out to Pascal. He's my guy. I'm going to miss him. Yeah, friend of um, the show. Yeah, friend of the show. We should get him on sometime. <laughs> We're always DMing each other and texting and hanging out, and I got I should throw. I should invite him sometime. I just never think yeah, to do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Among the other high hitter, heavy hitters, and celebs that I'm often, uh, uh, you know, chit chatting with. Uh, anyway, let, let's. I think let's let's put a pin in the sports chat for now. We got a we got a great episode coming up with Eric Sperling of Just Foreign Policy, a multi-time guest now, really great guy. Uh, fantastic conversation with him. And earlier this week in the bonus episode for Insurgents subscribers, we spoke to Mac, aka good politic guy right yeah we've been as we mentioned last week at the intro of our free episode we were just recording that as news broke the u.s was striking yemen so we talked about that a lot uh with with mac and also today with eric sperling uh i would encourage people to go back and listen to that conversation with mac i think it was it was good while still being fun where we were you know you really got to find a balance between veering off into way too depressing content which sometimes we are prone to do yeah and we're, we're a little bit guilty of that sometimes i think for sure for <laughs> sure you really got to be my i think we're more mindful of that now than we were in like lockdown but <laughs> i think that's just a, such a difficult circumstance yeah. in 2020 that we couldn't avoid um uh, but yeah I, I i would encourage people to check that out it was a ton of fun mac is great it, many of you might already know 
who he is, of his content, of his commentary. But yeah, you could get that episode at insurgentspod.com. It's just five bucks a month, and you get that episode. Every premium episode we've ever done, you get an additional episode every week as a thank you for subscribing, and you help keep this show going. We really can't thank you enough for subscribing. It means a lot to us. We love doing this. We've been doing this now for coming up on four years. We have some big plans for this year with the election cycle and all of the big uh, partisan events that we're excited to hopefully accomplish, but we desperately need your support to do that. So insurgentspod.com to subscribe. Yeah, uh, we appreciate all of our beloved paid interns who help keep this show going. Please subscribe if you can. And I think you're going to really like this conversation with Eric Sperling. I really appreciate the work that Eric does. If you're talking about like people that run in these foreign policy circles in Washington, D.C., you're talking about a lot of really freakish, ghoulish people. And I think Eric is someone that has really uh, uh, principled views on this stuff and really does try to work within this world to actually bring about uh, positive outcomes in this in this really uh, awful uh, system. So I really enjoyed talking to him. I appreciate the work he does. And I think, I think folks are going to enjoy the conversation too. you want to, you want to get to that? Get into it. Let's get into it with Eric Sperling of Just Foreign Policy. He's going to be joining the show right after this. Joining us now is Eric Sperling, Executive Director of Just Foreign Policy and returning guest. Eric, how have you been? Oh, it's been been great. Just a wonderful, wonderful <laughs> past several months, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's been, you know, I, I think as we were just discussing, it's, you know, somehow it, it's difficult. It feels emotionally difficult. And then you think of, you know, what it must be like to actually go through it. You try to keep some perspective. But uh, yeah, it's been been quite a time. Yeah, like there was a couple of moments because I just just covering this day in day out where you just you're seeing some of the most horrifying things, and there's a couple times that just I really lost it. Um, there's this one really like I I will probably never forget this as long as I live. But there's this clip of these kids in Gaza, which was actually before October seventh, just talking about their like hopes and dreams and stuff like that. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And this one kid's like, you know, I just want to have chocolate one time. Uh, one kid says, I really miss my big brother. I wish he would come back. And the one that I've, I said, I'm over this and it's already like hard to difficult to talk about. But this one kid's just like, I wish my dad would just go back to being how he was before, you know? And it's like, oh, it's, it's just impossible whether you have kids or not. I mean, that's just a really heartbreaking thing to see and to see that, uh, kids have to have to go through that kind of situation. And that was before the three month long uh, mass murder campaign uh, that has claimed the lives of, of tens of thousands of these kids. You know, who knows if the kids in that video that I'm talking about are even still alive. Uh, it's, it's hard to look at this day in, day out. But like you said, I think I reached a point where I said, like, why am I, why am I, I'm not the victim here. I'm not like Mr. Uh, you know, uh, Western, uh, comfortable podcaster. I'm not, I'm not the victim here. So, um, you know, you, I think it did provide a little perspective and it made me really feel thankful to, uh, to, you know, that my kid, for instance, just doesn't have to live through that kind of thing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been, it's been really difficult for everybody, I think, but it's given me some, some of that perspective I think has been important over the last couple of months. First, we wanted to provide another update on the U.S. strikes in Yemen. And Eric, you're somebody who has worked on this issue since 2015. During your time as a staffer on the Hill, you uh, were a foreign policy advisor and you were working pretty intimately on this issue uh, in Congress. So as somebody who has spent time working on it, seeing the consequences of the U.S., support for the Saudi coalition in Yemen over the years, the horrors that brought to Yemen. When Biden says the the airstrikes are not stopping the Houthis, but they're going to continue. Are the airstrikes in Yemen working? Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. 
Is it working? No. Are we going to continue doing it? Yes. Okay. Good. I mean, how does that make you? How does that make you feel? Do you think this is just U.S. foreign policy continued, or is this, you know, are they have they, have they cracked the case? Is it, is it just a a battle of wills? Yeah. Well, it is pretty complex. I mean, in terms of those specific Biden comments, you know, we sort of appreciate it. Um, you know, this is kind of the Trump and now Biden way, which is to say things very bluntly in a way that, you know, Tony Blinken or, or Jake Sullivan or, or uh, John Kirby wouldn't be caught dead speaking that way. And so we appreciate that. You know, um, it's useful. You know, I wish all of our politicians were honest like that because it makes it a lot easier to organize. All that to say is, um, you know, just as kind of a background of what happened in the war. And folks may recall uh, Ryan Grimm did a nice piece um kind of summing up what had happened in the last few years. And essentially what happened was after all of that U.S. support, all the tens of thousands of bombs, the blockade of Yemen, which is basically like a very extreme form of of sanctions, um, which, of course, the U.S. tried to deny for many years. And we're not we're not sanctioning them. It's just the the Houthi mismanagement. You'll hear this about every sanctioned country um, because they want the people there to believe, well, if I I throw out my leaders, you know, they're the ones responsible. They want to hide that. But after all of that, um, you know, this Houthi missile and drone kind of program essentially led the Saudis to feel that in light of kind of they just felt there was no way to defeat that threat militarily, that the Houthis would always have an ability to uh, launch missiles and drones at their facilities. And the Saudis are, you know, I guess, uh, you know, a little bit more proud than, you know, a lot of U.S. kind of client states. And they really are interested in moving on from being sort of this kind of, you know, Middle Eastern war zone. Um, and they want to move, you know, and actually China played a big role in brokering this. They want to move towards using their wealth to promote investment in the region and to win hearts and minds through investment and trade. Um, and I actually think that's a pretty reasonable way to go. I definitely prefer that to, to war um, and conflict, which was kind of the U.S.-backed approach. And so then when they um, just kind of started to signal that they were done with this, they just wanted to make a deal with the Houthis, and as long as the Houthis would not touch Saudi Arabia, there would be no issue. And the U.S. actually came in and said, whoa, you know, slow down. OK, you know, don't make it bad deal. You know, don't give them everything. OK, you know, you can't just give in after all these years. And so we actually saw a reversal where our previous understanding of, of it was that the Saudis were actually pushing the war and the U.S. was aiding it. And our whole strategy with the Yemen War Powers Resolution was to cut that U.S. support to force the Saudis out of the war. And we had a reversal where the Saudis wanted to get out of the war and the U.S. immediately sent Tim Lenderking, the Yemen envoy, uh, McGurk went, uh, and a couple other officials went immediately. And what they said was, don't just use diplomacy, use a mix of diplomacy and deterrence. And what that meant is, um, you know, don't give in. You know, essentially the strategy was, was, you know, keep holding out for a better deal. And if the Houthis attack you, uh, we'll destroy them. Basically, we'll help you bomb, bomb them to, you know, bomb all their sites and weaken them. And, and the Saudis just decided it's not worth it to us. We're just over the era of drones and missiles in the sky and we want to get out. And that's sort of where things were. And uh, in, in that deal was is very close to being signed. And the U.S. was was pushing back against it. And that's where we were leading into the Gaza war. Um, and so, yeah, that's just kind of the background of kind of on what they call the Yemeni civil war. But what we ultimately found out was very much fully a U.S. backed, arguably more U.S. backed than than we knew uh, initially. Yeah, a couple of interesting things about that, I think, uh, like that exact situation totally exposes that whole U.S. strategy, which we're seeing being employed in, in Gaza right now of fully backing these wars while pretending that they don't want to or pretending that they're so concerned or pretending that we're, they're urging restraint. You see when, when the Saudis tried to walk back from that, it's the, it's the U.S. saying like, no, 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 more, more violence. We got to keep bombing. Don't, don't, let's not, let's not do that. Um, so it just exposes how fraudulent that that kind of strategy is of trying to the hand wringing and wrapping up their uh, you know, backing of these really violent regimes with this kind of like progressive rhetoric or this kind of this suggestion that uh, they're being their hands are being forced all this stuff. It's just it's always been a total lie, a total fraud. But it's interesting to see it spelled out like that. You also do really see the difference between U.S. foreign policy and uh, China's foreign policy. And 
I think, you know, people on the left, there's things you can look at at China and you want them to do more. You want them to be more internationalist. You want to back Palestine more. Um, you, it's, it's upsetting when you see sometimes they have these diplomatic relationships with, with really terrible regimes, uh, whether it's Israel or the Saudis. But I think when you start to pay attention to what their foreign policy is and how, it, how, it, how they operate, that's kind of how it is. It's like we don't want to mess around with any of your internal affairs. What we want to do is try and make deals with everyone, try and stop the fighting and the bombing and try and make deals where everyone involved benefits, you know, and, uh, I, again, if you're, if you're a, a leftist and internationalist, uh, whatever, that can be frustrating sometimes, I think, but there you see the strategy at least, like you see the logic of it and you see the strategy of it and you see in Yemen and Saudi Arabia, that's that strategy kind of paying dividends and, as it come when it comes to Israel, you see they've kind of tried to make these efforts to um, promote this kind of a vision there, but it seems like it's so far falling on deaf ears, and you have Israel and the United States just fully determined to uh, follow through with the absolute most violent, brutal strategy that they can possibly muster. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think a lot of us who worked on Yemen have, and who are interested in kind of China's foreign policy and, and U.S. foreign policy towards China we've thought a lot about that and it's definitely something that, you know, you know, your instinct is to, um, to say, well, how can you possibly cooperate with this horrible regime? You know, you wish that they would just take this stance, but on, what you do see over time is that, and I think what, from their perspective, what they feel that they learned from the kind of the, you know, the Soviet era is that when you completely tie yourself to a government or you make, um, a government, say one of these other developing world, you know, uh, government's your enemy, or, or you make it your ally, then the US has a 100% incentive to overthrow that government. And when the opposition comes to power, they see you as being on the other side. Um, and so then you are out and it really creates this type of, you know, this type of Cold War uh, conflicts that we saw across much of Latin America and, and, and Asia and Africa, where, you know, you have the Soviets backing one side, the US backing the other. So China, what they felt is, well, if we have, if we're totally neutral, have great relationships with both sides, it not only benefits us, it not only benefits that country, but it reduces the incentive for the U.S. to do the regime change there. Um, and I think that's been pretty, you know, I think there's some truth to that. And I think the Saudi experience, you know, really speaks to that. You know, the fact that they didn't take a principled stand and say, look, you guys are a human rights violating government that, you know, doesn't do anything, you know, you know in ways that conflict even with our sense of what human rights should be. Um, and, and, you know, but they maintain good relations and it ultimately allowed them to broker a deal that, you know, I think it has a real chance to be extremely positive for the region and even for, and for Saudi Arabia and for China. So, um, yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. And, and so anyway, but that's, that's a, perhaps another topic. I'm wondering if you can give us, uh, an update on just how many times that have been reported the U S has, has bombed Yemen over the past several days and we're also seeing this push from potentially some members of democratic members of congress we don't know exactly who or the details yet but there's there seems to be or it's reported that there is a growing chorus of progressive democrats who want Brett McGurk out you mentioned him earlier could you tell listeners who he is and his role uh, in this conflict and why people would want him out. Yeah, well, McGurk is one of these longtime operatives. I think he served over four administrations. Uh, he's in the National Security Council, the top guy for, for the Middle East. And what's actually interesting is that uh, National Security Con the National um, Security Council has actually been, you know, <laughs> I want to say relatively more sensible than state under the Biden administration in a number of areas. Well, there's been, and this is all, we're talking about the difference between you know, hard right and center hard right, you know, but but it does make a difference in this few instances. You just see um, moments where, um, you know, you have the State Department under Blinken and with Newland, who was really pretty prominent over there, taking the more hawkish position and, and then a little bit more pragmatism from the NSC. That certainly doesn't seem to be the case with the Middle East stuff under McGurk. Um, you know, he's just seen as and there's a long history of his closeness to the Saudis. And he definitely seems to be kind of more of a traditional, um, you know, global domination kind of hard power, um, you know, looking at the big picture of how, uh, 
you know, how critical the U.S.-Saudi partner, how, how important it is essentially to battle back against this idea that the Saudis could start to become a power that kind of has, you know, is not completely wedded to the United States. And so he's been on the side that has been the most open to concessions to Saudi, to pushing back against criticism of Saudi Arabia. And, you know, he's reportedly connected to us this really ridiculous concept of, you know, some sort of major U.S. concession or security arrangement uh, protecting Saudi Arabia in exchange for them um, in normalizing with Israel and, and trying to, you know, kind of mix the politics of competing with Trump for sort of the pro-Israel vote um, and, you know, with the geopolitics of keeping Saudi Arabia in the U.S. camp and having them, you know, kind of forcing them, like we talked about China, you know, kind of trying to pull them out of that, you know, Chinese approach where you you maintain good relations with multiple big powers and try to keep them firmly in the U.S. camp. And so that's what he's certainly about, um, you, you know, but but I, I'm sure he's, he's I don't think he's alone in that. I think there are many people um, in Washington who are worried about Saudi Arabia moving towards China. Uh, you know, we saw Chris Murphy had a resolution to examine Saudi human rights practices. And when the Saudi-China collaboration be- went came out, he completely dropped that. And you'll notice he has not mentioned it one more time. Um, so he got the signals, well, it's not the time to criticize Saudi Arabia. There's kind of a whole of government effort to bring them into our camp. So, but all that to say, you know, on, on, the, on the Yemen front, um, what's taken place is that, you know, the Houthis have, you know, because of this Saudi deal, uh, this, this sense that the Saudis are ready to exit and sign a deal, they're pretty solidly in control of, of northern Yemen, 70% of the population, and they've been governing that for about eight years. And, um, you know, they've never blocked ships in a significant way before, but they are very much, uh, you know, focused on the U.S. and Israeli presence being harmful in the region. That's one of their, it's in their slogan, it's in their, on their flag. And so they decided to, to use, take this opportunity to, to start to use their access to that, to, you know, their, their kind of control over the, the Baba Mandeb Strait, where 12 to 15 percent of world shipping traffic goes through. And, you know, and they, and they started to target these ships, as I'm sure you're, everyone knows. Um, and so finally, after many, many threats, um, the U- U.S. followed through on their threats, the Saudis and their Gulf allies, virtually none of them were supportive, but the U.S. has now conducted five rounds of airstrikes. Uh, We just, it was four yesterday, now there's another one today. And the result has been just totally as experts predicted. Um, The Houthis are having a field day with the propaganda. Every indication is that they absolutely love it. Um, And they're thrilled. And you can read their statements, which are pretty amusing. (laughs) <laughs> um, but also, of course, it further scared shipping away from 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 that waterway. So, well, you know, I thought these were de-escalatory uh, strikes, missile strikes. Though they were trying to de-escalate. Yeah, you're right. It's like no, no. Let's turn it into even more of an active war zone. I think that should be really great for this international flow of uh, commerce. Yeah, so it's just totally wild. I mean, I think <laughs> you know what you you hear a lot in the media. They weren't just targeting Israeli-linked ships. But from the Houthis' perspective, they definitely had an interest to just target Israeli ships because that's where they have the most leverage. Um, And so it's an interesting dynamic where the U.S. is saying that they don't like that they're targeting non-Israeli ships. Uh, But in reality, it's in the Houthi interest to not do that. And it's in the U.S. interest for the threat to be broader than Israel, because what the U.S. doesn't want and what Israel can't afford is if the Houthis did manage to just target Israeli ships, it could be incredibly effective because it would not harm any of the world's you know, economy except for Israel's. So it's kind of this interesting dynamic, sort of this bad faith messaging where the U.S. is pretending that they're distraught that it's affecting non-Israeli ships, when in reality, it's in their interest to make it a broader global economic problem to try to bring all these countries, 98 percent of the countries of the world, who are not in any way wanting to be affiliated with striking Yemen. Um, so it's really quite a complex dynamic and the Biden administration is, is really in a tough, tough position here. Yeah. I mean, you pointed out how these strikes seem to have just strengthened their position uh, even more. And it seems like the whole last decade of the blockade and the, the Saudi war on Yemen has just strengthened their position as well. 
So I don't know why what people were thinking that this was going to have some kind of different result. It was amazing when this bombing campaign kind of kicked off when they announced that they were going to bomb these targets. And you saw all these kinds of comments from these from Americans saying just shit like, oh, the Houthis, they're about to get so much freedom and democracy and stuff like that. By the way, I hate how that's been turned into this kind of like ironic thing when people say to, to describe uh, bombing campaigns. Um, or there was that one tweet where the guy was like, "These they're just about to find out why we don't have health care in the United States. It's like they're like br- br- bragging about the fact that uh, money that should go to pay for social services are going to weapons contractors. Are those contractors. people on our side or are they on the other side? I couldn't I don't know. Well, that's that it. Really but weird. that's it. It's like it's, that, has been, that has not been the result. These people have this idea of what the U.S. military is capable of. And then in practice, you see it's had the completely opposite effect. You referenced the comments that some of the leadership have been making just like mocking biden and mocking the americans and getting telling the american terrorists to go home and stuff i saw the footage from this like massive rally and i think sana um where they're saying like you know give us a bigger war like like they don't care they're not they're clearly not intimidated they're not scared they're certainly not going to stop what they're doing um <clears throat> Like you said, it's just they seem pretty thrilled by the whole thing. It's a huge propaganda coup for them. And uh, it just, as always, their their position just seems to have been totally strengthened. So despite what some of these like chauvinist, American chauvinist weirdos were saying early on and about this, it seems to have had the totally opposite effects, right? And you can imagine if you're like the Yemeni people, you're one of the poorest countries in the world, the poorest country in the region. You know, the world has effectively said, um, you know, under our liberal rules-based, you know, international order, you know, you all are the lowest rung of people. You're the people we care the least about. You're doing the worst. You're insignificant in the eyes of the world, you know. Um, and so they now have this opportunity to, you know, because of their geographic location and because of the way that this war shaped up where they had to develop a way to win it that didn't involve having any significant infrastructure. Um, so there's nothing to bomb. Um, you can't really make them suffer more than they've already suffered. They're already pretty much, you know, it's it's horrific to imagine. I mean, I'm not a person who has experienced even anything, even in the realm of, of that. But these are, are tough people who have been hardened by this, you know, arguably genocidal U.S.-Saudi war over nine years. And so you imagine for that from their perspective, not just the leaders, but others. I mean, the whole world is paying attention to them. You know, they have an opportunity to show the whole region you know, we are a great people that are the number one, you know, force standing up against Israel right now. And you can imagine people having some pride in that. And, you know, even all of the anti-Houthi voices uh, in the Yemen policy circles, if you will, you know, folks who have opposed our efforts, you know, to end U.S. support for the Saudi-backed coalition and the proxy government there, they all agree that this is disastrous because they know that you know, Yemenis are uniting behind the Houthis in the face of this external threat and, you know, in light of the Houthis leadership. So, you know, it has done, it's been interesting to see that this this kind of was a pretty divided Yemen policy community between those who were more interested in, in kind of keeping that U.S. support in hopes of doing kind of a nation building type thing that involved the U.S. backed proxy government. And those of us who said, no, our job is to end our complicity in, in, in crimes, essentially. That was a split, but now the whole community is united saying this is helping the Houthis and you're falling into a trap. And so it's been that's been an interesting dynamic for sure. This certainly risks uh, blowing up the situation into a f- broader regional war. And now with tensions between uh, Iran uh, and, and Pakistan flaring up, it just I'm very, very concerned about what the next couple months or potentially a couple years looks like. Um but Israel is is not backing down. The U.S., despite their yet again another round of stories about how Biden's frustration is mounting with Netanyahu, but no <laughs> noticeable or meaningful shift in policy from the U.S. But then today very te- they had a very tense phone conversation a month ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and I heard they haven't talked really in tough. weeks. Yeah, we were sending them aid, but we're not sending them bypassing <laughs> not Congress to send them more bombs to drop on little kids, <laughs> yeah. but. In a in a stern stern way, yeah. That, exactly. Those missiles were sent in a very stern, disappointed way. <laughs> <laughs> but now Netanyahu is is talking about his plans and Israel's plans for Gaza after this war, which we don't even know when it'll end or if it'll end. 
and he's talking about we see we see reports yet again reaffirming what we've already known about Netanyahu that there will not be a Palestinian state and explicitly saying Israel has to control the entire area from the river to the sea you know everything west of Jordan he's saying is Israel I was under the impression and Eric you're you're a foreign policy expert you know this stuff well I was under the impression that that phrase is a call for genocide and that college students using that uh, as a way to declare support for people in Gaza was a call for genocide. So help us understand what Netanyahu's uh, game is here. Yeah, I think we've all been been seeing that, um, you know, what their plan was from the start. I mean, in the West Bank, they have the option of doing the slow settlement growth. And, you know, over time, everyone agrees where that's heading. It's heading to the elimination of any chance of, of, of a state being part of that. I mean, you'd have to have a war between, you know, some army, whether it's, you know, IDF or some outside army and those settler armed settlers. So, but they didn't have that in Gaza. And that was their huge problem is this, as long as Gaza is, um, you know, doesn't have settlements and as long as they're just able to be there, you know, you continue to have that demographic demographic problem that makes Israel, you know, in the eyes of many around the world and in the eyes, you know, kind of objectively speaking, an apartheid state. And so, you know, I think all of us probably suspected it. And then there wasn't any piece of evidence that negated it. It's only been confirmed more and more that they either want to force uh, the Gazans out or they want to make life so miserable that they, you know, people start to move just because they can't take anymore or they want to reestablish settlements. Um, or something to change that equation so that they can destroy the idea of the Palestinian state and eventually get that full piece of land that Netanyahu showed on his map at the UN and that he now just reaffirmed that he has always been referring to. So it's just a remarkable, you know, but on the U.S. side, you know, not just in this conflict, but in so many others, there's this constant thing where these really smart, thoughtful people, whether it's Jake Sullivan or, you know, they come up with this plan and, and you know, it, if it really works, it, you know, it, if it would really work, okay, you could sort of see the logic in it, but it, it never works out how it's intended to. And most reasonable people could see that. And then they say, well, you, but our intentions were good. And so in this case, the intentions are, you know, as I think from their perspective, if you were to get them talking frankly, They'd say we need a two-state solution, and we can't have that as long as Hamas is in power. So we want to let Israel do their dirty work here, get rid of Hamas, and then we're going to push for a two-state solution. But we need to buy time for Israel to eradicate Hamas. And they're so out of their minds that they they never learned the lessons that all of us learned pretty long time ago, which is that you're not going to kill you know your way out of a group like this. In fact, you're going to strengthen them and you're going to make them, you know, more, you know, you're going to, you're going to raise a new generation of people who support them even more vehemently. So that's what I think the goal is. That's why the, and you actually saw voices who consider themselves progressive, you know, hinting at this too, kind of saying, you know, even Bernie, the reason, you know, Bernie was saying this, it was sort of speaking to this idea that you can't have, he said, you can't have a ceasefire with Hamas and what, what those folks are thinking. And I don't think Bernie's not in on it. But kind of what he's been fed is this idea that you have to get rid of Hamas, then you'll be able to push for a two-state solution. Of course, what's really going to happen is Israel's going to try to get rid of Hamas. They're not going to succeed. They're going to commit something very close to an attempted genocide, you know, an outright genocide or a very extreme ethnic cleansing. And then they're still not going to do the two-state solution. But at least then these U.S. officials can say, well, but you saw what our intent was. You know, we wanted a two-state solution. And if you try to say, yeah, but you had reason to know that that wasn't going to be possible. That's a very hard thing to prove, what what these people had reason to know. So we see this in many, many conflicts, and that's my sense of what they're doing in this one as well. Yeah, uh, it's something we talked a little bit about in the last episode, but just, yeah, the idea that you can just, like, this was the whole U.S. war on terror strategy. We'll just kill everyone that hates America and hates the West, and then then that there'll be a glorious new world order where everyone is our friend uh, once all the baddies are killed. Like, obviously, that's just a totally preposterous way of doing things. And if you look at Gaza, like, there's this whole generation of orphaned kids and people that have been through the most extreme trauma uh, imaginable. And like like we, I pointed out the last time we spoke about this, like, if, if all of Hamas was eliminated 
tomorrow. Then there would be another extremist group that would form in the wake of that. There's as long as this occupation and this apartheid system is in place, there's going to be militant armed resistance to that. That's just like a, it's like a yin and yang. It's, it, it's one feeds into the other. And this idea, I don't, I can't, I don't want to give people the benefit of the doubt because I can't imagine there's actually smart people that really think that that's an actual possibility. I mean, it's just a, it's a completely ridiculous concept. And the idea that it's taken this much that now like the, now the Biden administration has fully backed 100%, regardless of the rhetoric or the hand wringing or whatever else, have 100% backed this absolutely barbaric uh, genocidal violence with this totally idiotic logic uh, animating that. It's just, it's just really unfathomable to me. And I mean, it's the, this statement going back to what Jordan was saying about the statement from Netanyahu, I think it's interesting because when the case started with the ICJ, the, the genocide accusation in the ICJ by South Africa, and you saw like the day before that kind of started, there was a little bit of like damage control going on. And Netanyahu was saying, of course, we have no intention of ever permanently occupying Gaza. And they're kind of all of a sudden walking back some of this really extreme rhetoric that's been used over the last couple of months, a lot of which is the forms, the basis of this Saudi of this South African case is literally just statements being made by Netanyahu and other Israeli officials. And you see them kind of walking that back. And then what, two, three days later, he's out there again saying, no, there's not going to be a Palestinian state and it's going to be Israel from the river to the sea. And, you know, that's what, that's what any, anyone has been saying over the last couple of months, as long as there's been this fake controversy over pro-Palestine students saying Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, which has been present at every single pro-Palestine protest for years now. And this, this totally fake contrived, uh, uh, controversy over that, which has led to all these congressional hearings and all this bullshit and all this, this convert, this hand wringing conversation about genocidal uh calls yeah calls for genocide on university campuses at at harvard or whatever the famously pro hamas uh, harvard um it's just amazing and, and like what anyone could have told you is that that's always been israel's what they want it's they're very clear about this is that that's what they see that's their vision for that region is one one country from the river to the sea called israel with as few palestinians as possible uh left in there. Like anyone that knows anything about this has been saying this for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I guess similar to the way that like people like Biden and Trump are being open and honest about their, the U S empire and its intentions, you have to hand it to Bibi Netanyahu in this case, I guess, for just really spelling it out for everyone in case there was any confusion left about what their intentions were. But yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And I think um, that's one of the fascinating parts about these kind of about, you know, what you could kind of call, you know, imperialism or these kind of projects like like Israel that are kind of tied to it. It's just over time, they become, they're so disconnected from the rest of the world and how the world sees things that they just can't even, you know, and I think it's starting to happen with our government too, where they're just so tone deaf, you know, like Blinken puts out these statements and, and it's like that he actually thinks that, you know, saying, you know, we're urging you to respect human rights more while you're sending the weapons like that they think that actually it's amazing that they think that that actually has an impact on how u.s role in in in, in this conflict is being seen around the world you know but that's the world they're in you, you put out a statement you know you you have some kind of minor minimally critical language and they think that the world is saying well look at that the u.s is not behind israel it just shows that they're just so out of touch and it just doesn't bode well for you know u.s soft power, um, you know, to the extent that that's the thing that anyone should want, it's, uh, they're not even able to advance that anymore. And in Israel, I mean, I just saw there was a new poll, forget if it was a Pew poll or something, but, you know, is views of Israel around the world have cratered. You know, I was actually surprised they were so high uh, before that, but um, in many countries, but they're not now. And the U.S. is also taking a huge hit. And so it's just remarkable. You know, I think that we are reaching a stage where they're so out of touch, you know, they live in such a bubble world that's so disconnected from the rest of the planet and from any kind of normal person on the, that they can't even figure out how to, you know, advance their own interests. Um, and so that's just been the craziest part, especially in our work, you know, where you have essentially these, these political classes that aren't responsive to normal pressure because they're in such a bubble. 
So that's been, I think, one of the more challenging parts, I'd say, for the anti-war kind of pro-diplomacy movement. It's just kind of how do you even reach these people when they're basically out of their minds, you know, from the, you know, kind of compared to how any reasonably sane person would look at it. What is the mood on the Hill when you're talking to staffers, when you're talking to members, have people changed? I mean, are they still firmly, is the, are the same people still firmly in this? We have to defend Israel. We have to defeat Hamas camp. Or are you seeing shifts big or small do you have you noticed any changes over the past couple of months now seeing that they are not reaching this goal they're not getting getting anywhere close to this goal over 20,000 people have been killed they're blowing up hospitals and university i mean i saw just to sh- just to really illustrate how warped people's minds are and how we've totally turned war into a new avenue for just content I saw a fan cam of a university being completely obliterated today. It's like, what's what was the threat here? And when you well, have I think all worth of this, pointing out as well, not start to interrupt Jordan, but you can continue mm-hmm. in a sec. But just worth pointing out as well, this uh, university, uh, Israel University, was mined with like hundreds of mines. It wasn't bombed. It wasn't a combat zone. There wasn't people. There wasn't Hamas there. They literally took teams of engineers and and mined the university and and blew it up and filmed yes. it and and shared that with the world basically it was with no just real totally destroyed yeah yeah it wasn't just a, a, a one bomb hitting it it was just totally obliterated so when you see this type of stuff come out and people celebrate it and you see like next to no progress of securing the hostages or eradicating hamas have there been any shifts have has there been any meaningful shift in congress yeah so i think we had two major shifts so the first shift is one that you all will be very familiar with. I think everyone on, you know, who's, who's kind of more in the alternative, you know, kind of in the left of any way knows that, you know, Democrats became obsessed with Trump. It's the only thing is to defeat Trump. And so I think that's part of the explanation for how we got here in the first place is, you know, Trump had, you know, the Abraham Accords is seen as a huge win for him, seen as, as you know, and, and, and getting him a lot of support from kind of pro-Israel American voters and donors. And, and that was really in the forefront of people's minds. And so it happened with so many other policy issues, too, where they said, we can't do we can't do anything on that because Trump scored a lot of political points on that. And now we can't touch it. That's happened with Cuba policy, for example, um, you know, in a major way, uh, which we could go into at some point. But but so that's kind of where we started is this place that, you know, that uh, that's what allowed this genocide to get so out of hand in the first place. But then on the other hand, you did have. Um, you know, this whole generation of younger staffers, I think we've seen them and it does absolutely exist. You know, first of all, you've had kind of the squad members and their staff who have just been, you know, pretty much heroic, I would say. I mean, almost across the board. I mean, the work these people are doing, you know, the amount of time they're spending thinking creatively, how can we impact this? Um, you know, the, the squad and the staff have been totally independent uh, and, you know, focused on promoting the greater good. Uh, and that's extremely exciting. And then there's a whole network of other staffers who, you know, some of them have bosses that they can sway, and some of them are working for bosses that they're unhappy with. Um, but that's definitely a major, a major force. And it's been really exciting. You know, the, some of the silver linings of this is just that this, you know, the Israel and this, the plight of the Palestinians is one that you know, even people who didn't follow foreign policy super closely are well aware of it. Um, and so it's been really yeah, I think illuminating for people to see just how extreme the Biden administration has been on this issue. And, you know, we had so many other issues that are not, you know, well-known or, or, you know, followed in the same way. And the Biden administration says, you know, look, we're, we're being, we're promoting peace. You know, people who are critical of our policy are really the enemy. They love the enemy. That's why they disagree with our policy. You, so don't listen to these folks. They love the enemy. Our policy is progressive. And, and, you know, a lot of staffers said, okay, yeah, these are just very serious State Department people. They get the issue. We don't want to listen to the left on this issue. And now they're seeing that, wow, like this administration is really supporting one of the most extreme mass slaughters, you know, in any of our lifetimes by far. And, you know, maybe they weren't so right on these other issues either. You know, maybe their sanctions policy on this or that country or maybe, you know, so that's been really helpful. And I do think it's it's definitely a moment where, um, 
you know, people are both on the, in the grassroots and in the staff level, you know, people are getting engaged in a foreign policy issue in a way they never had before. And I think it has the chance to, once we get out of this horrific mass killing and we can, you know, hopefully have that somewhat in the rear view, um, you know, that it could have some benefits for these other causes as well. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to own in on something you mentioned about Cuba policy, if you want to get further into that, because that's something I find kind of interesting. Just as someone as as someone that, you know, pays attention to U.S. politics and what's going on in the U.S. government, obviously, as a as an outsider, as a foreigner, I'm disconnected from from a lot of what happens there. But I am really interested on a foreign policy level about what's going on in the U.S. government, because that affects everywhere in the entire world. And. I think one thing I told myself about the the Biden administration and what could possibly be different from a, a Trump administration from a foreign policy standpoint was talking about the ways that like, you know, Obama had, a, in my view, like a, a horrific blood drenched uh, foreign policy uh, that was mostly extremely disastrous. But with a few bright spots, one of those was n- taking steps to normalize relationships with Cuba and the Iran deal which Trump, of course, uh, walked away from the Iran. That was like, that was Obama's kind of signature foreign policy achievement, which I think was a genuinely uh, transformative and uh, impressive uh, accomplishment, the Iran deal, which Trump just arbitrarily walked away from. So, you know, I I told myself about Biden, well, those, you know, I'm sure on a foreign policy level, it's going to be a disaster as all the U.S. Uh, presidents, uh, presidential administrations are, but Maybe on these two levels, if Biden, if at least they just go back to where Obama was on Cuba and on Iran, you know, those are two, those are going to be two positive things that you can point to that would be real different between what a Republican administration would do. And I think it's amazing how that has not happened, despite Biden being uh, the vice president for, for uh, when those kind of like policies shifted. Um, and it just hasn't happened. And in fact, I saw a clip the other day where, the, you know, the Biden administration was asked about this and one of their spokesperson indicated that they're not even considering removing Cuba from the state sponsors of terrorism list. And they're not even considering going back to re normalizing relationship relations with them or let alone ending the blockade or, or sanctions against Cuba, which I think that's incredible given the fact that they just helped kill over 20,000 people in, in Gaza, that they're still holding on to this idea that Cuba is somehow some, geopolitical threat sponsoring terror groups. Like, I don't even know what reality that is supposed to be based on. That is incredible. And yeah, when it comes to Iran, there's been no movement to get back in the Iran deal. There's been a lot of demands made of Iran, which is amazing when it's the the United States who walked away from the deal in the first place, all of a sudden making all kinds of demands about how Iran can, can, uh, you know, get them back to the table when they're the ones that you know walked away from the deal in the first place, which Iran was in compliance with. Um, and not only have they not gone back to the Iran deal, but now you have this like widening regional conflict where there's these efforts being made to draw in Iran even further to that. Um, Iran recently just attacked a bunch of uh, not I mean attacked a bunch of uh, positions in both Syria and Iraq, including a Mossad headquarters. And of course, uh, you know, there was the bombing attack on the anniversary of the Soleimani assassination by uh, Israel and the United States. Oh, sorry, excuse me, uh, ISIS. No, I'm sorry, I, I made a mistake on that one. Uh, obviously, there's no relation between between ISIS and Israel and the United States, of course. But nevertheless, though, my point is that not only have they not uh, restored any kind of normalized relationships with either Iran or Cuba, but uh, they've they've escalated things even more to this extent that like we seem to be even where it feels like we're kind of dancing on this knife edge of, of, of a potentially explosive widening a regional conflict. So it's been even on those two things that I was kind of holding out hope for, it's been pretty much the exact opposite uh, in practice. Yeah. I mean, I think that sums up um, what a lot of us were hoping for. Um, you know, it's kind of the the foreign policy case for the lesser of two evils. And, um, you know, I, I know my organization was, you know, in, in the Cuba advocacy community, six weeks into the Biden administration, led a letter, you know, there was a letter led by many Congress members, signed by 12 committee chairs, 80 members of Congress said, with the stroke of a pen, you can reverse Trump's Cuba policy, go back to Obama, just with the stroke of a pen, do it without delay. And, uh, you know, it, it was explosive. Six weeks, the administration was shocked. And, um, 
But what we're really seeing generally is, and this, this relates to what we're seeing in Israel as well, is everyone who was once a champion, say if it's members of Congress or many of the organizations that say if they have donors that are also, you know, many of the large donors are also going to donate to the Democratic Party leadership. Right. If you're if you're going to donate to an organization to try to influence policy, you're also just going to donate to the policymakers. And so what you did see was just this general feeling of this happened on Iran policy, definitely happened on Cuba policy, is that we don't want to push too hard. We want to be kind of cognizant of the fact that, you know, these are political winners for Trump and we want to let the administration do it at their own pace. Um, And so then if we you know, if those groups aren't creating pressure then what ultimately happens is, is that the lobbies that do create pressure uh, win out. And that's what certainly happened with Iran, the Israel lobby, uh, you know, APAC absolutely crushed, you know, the, the pro-diplomacy, you know, forces on that. And, and it's in large part because the pro-diplomacy forces were close to the administration and didn't want to threaten the administration or really exact a cost from the administration. And so then once you have two, two options and one of them doesn't, harm you, there's no cost, and the other one would, you're going to go with the, the option that doesn't harm you, which is to to just keep the policy in line with the powers that be um, and, the, and the donor class. And so that's what we saw. And so in Cuba, it's, it's been very frustrating because, you know, there was independent efforts, like I mentioned early on, to start pressure. But then you did see other members of Congress who were leaders on the issue who basically would try to say, Let's not pressure them. Let's let's kind of take, let them take their time. We trust that they're going to do the right thing. And then we saw, I believe it was in in the Ryan Grimm piece on the on the Cuba state sponsor of terror issue, where you know one of the members of Congress, I'm not going, I guess I won't name him uh, right now, but it's in the article. You know, was furious. You know, we were told that you were reviewing this. You know, and anyone following it in a serious way could tell they were not going to move. They were they were not even thinking about it you know, because there was no pressure on them, you know, so that's kind of the dynamic that we're seeing. And it's so different from the Trump years where when it was Trump, you could get Democrats to be super impassioned and super militant in their advocacy. And under Biden, it's more, these are good guys. They're good people. They're our friends. You know, let's not put pressure on them. And, and unfortunately, it just misunderstands how power works. And that's just not how power works. You have to build independent power and really exact, you know, really kind of extract some sort of cost from them to be able to, um, you know, threat be able to threaten that for them to listen. And so, you know, I think it, it does speak to the need for a, a foreign policy, kind of a, a left wing anti-interventionist foreign policy that not just left wing can, there's also some folks on the libertarian right, but that's truly independent from the parties and from the donor class that supports the parties. And that's kind of the space that, that we're in, um, where you know you're not going to sacrifice the lives of people abroad for the potential chance that it you know gives a 0.1% electoral advantage to a particular party but that's that is unfortunately how many of the supposed advocates on these issues feel well eric we want to thank you for joining us we always appreciate your insight uh, where can people follow you find more of your work and how can they support just foreign policy yeah i think the best way to stay up to 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 speed would be on our, our Twitter at just FP. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for, for having me and for all you guys are doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric. Take care.